Welcome to Edge of the Couch. Whether you've just started listening or you've been with us since the beginning, we are grateful you're here. Before we really get into the show, we spend a few minutes chatting about Jane. Jane is a practice management software that Jordan and I use in our own private practices and we can't get enough of. Jane is helpful, intuitive, and beautifully designed, so it's easy to navigate and easy to get started and set up your account. Something that stood out to me right away with Jane was the fact that I've never had to wait more than 10 minutes to chat with a real human. And most often, it's a shorter wait time than that. Their team is so knowledgeable, friendly, and genuinely helpful. I walk away from my calls knowing more about the software and having a better understanding of how I can use it to serve my clients. When you're starting out, why not take all the help you can get? The Jane team is there to pass on and share their firsthand knowledge of Jane with you and really set you up for success. In my mind, scheduling a new account support call speeds up the learning process of adapting to a new software. You get to work one-to-one with the Jane expert to review your account settings and ensure you're taking full advantage of the features suited for your practice. Totally. Last week, we dug deep into some strategies for approaching Jane's support team with good questions and scheduling calls. Here are a few more ways you can think about Jane's unlimited support offerings. Jane offers support by phone, email, chat. And they have their online guide with helpful self-led walkthroughs of Jane. You can check these out at jane.app slash mental health. You can use live chat. You may be familiar with live chat. A lot of websites have this option. Live chat is a great choice for support if you want a quick answer on something specific or if you generally just like chatting over text rather than calling someone. You can access live chat from Jane's homepage at jane.app or directly from inside your Jane account under the need help button. I use this option most often. And then there's always trusty old email. This is a great option if you'd like to fire off a question and come back to a step-by-step personalized response you can refer back to whenever you need it. I've used this one before about how to create new sessions in Jane or how to find certain billing information. Just send off an email and get a really detailed quality response. As you can tell, we love Jane and both found their support team to be helpful guides as we started in private practice. Even today, we still rely on their handy online guide or live support team to answer questions we have and to support our practicum students. Want to see if our favorite software is a good fit for you in your practice? The Jane team really does care about this, that you enjoy the software you use every day. And a great way to see if that could be true for you is by reviewing their features and booking a demo. You can find that at jane.app slash mental health. If you know Jane is for you and you want to sign up, just mention Edge of the Couch in your sign-up notes and the Jane team can add on a one-month grace period for you to settle into your account. All right, now on to the show. This podcast is not training or supervision. This is an invitation to delve into these really big topics. When we are talking about clients, please know it is not you. It is a weaving together of stories that come up over and over again. With Edge of the Couch, we are here to create a space to delve into the topics that were either shied away from or dismissed because they were too big, too nuanced, too risky, or too uncomfortable to discuss in school or even supervision. We are two passionate therapists sharing our personal opinions about the therapeutic process. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Edge of the Couch. I'm Allison McCleary. I'm Jordan Piquel. And today, We are covering an often requested topic, theoretical orientation. Yeah, it's something that we take for granted now, I think, being further into our careers because it feels so much less relevant than it did when we were students. And we know that for new therapists, for student therapists, this is a topic that you think about a lot. And so we wanted to speak to it. 
Yeah. Even like I think about my students who are in their programs right now, the ones that I'm supervising, and they have to choose a theoretical orientation, do the examinations through that lens. And then in their seminars, like show, you know, an audio or video clip of them using a skill from that orientation. So there's like very much a Mm -hmm. decide what it is and be able to actively use it and show me how you do it pressure that, you know, you and I have the luxury of not really having to do anymore. It makes sense to me to start with a coherent uh, way of conceptualizing clients. And Mm -hmm. I find that with new therapists, with students, it's really easy to get into your head of how do I apply this particular intervention when Uh, to me as a supervisor, it really is taking people back and going into supporting the client, building a relationship. Yes. And the theoretical orientation to me sometimes gets in the way of that. I'm seeing it with the students that I'm supervising like currently where it's, you know, they're like, I don't, I don't know when I'm supposed to use the skill. I'm like, the skill is the silence. Mm-hmm. Like you're doing the skill. But yeah. if that's not like, you know, uh, such and such a theoretical orientation approach or skill. And so I think for both you and I, the orientations that we use don't come with how to do da-da-da book. Mm -hmm. Like here's the workbook that you take your client through. Like here's the skills. So it is much more like anything that I do. This is because of my orientation, even if I am introducing a specific skill. So there's a lot more freedom, but it's also harder to conceptualize and make sense of that for new therapists. It's in this very rigid or just prescriptive Mm -hmm. way of taking, like you said, taking through the steps. How do you conceptualize this client through this theoretical orientation? What interventions are you going to do? Where are you taking them to? Which again, I think is helpful in some ways. And then when you're sitting with a client can really get in the way of being present. And maybe that's a good thing for us to talk about, which is like, what are the benefits of working from a theoretical framework, having a theoretical orientation that like, you know, hovers above your work? It's grounding. I would say it's grounding. It tells you, you know, when you get lost, you can look at what's going on through a particular lens and it creates a coherence. I think a theoretical orientation can be helpful and it can sort of tell you what direction you want to head into. A theoretical orientation helps me to understand what is going on for my client, like how I make sense of what they're bringing to therapy, whether that's anxiety or depression Mm -hmm. or interpersonal relationship issues or lowered self-esteem or trauma. Like how do I conceptualize like what anxiety is, why Mm -hmm. it exists, how it's there. And then the other thing that I think it does is it helps us to have an understanding of what what creates change in therapy. And as a new therapist, I remember being like, I don't understand why therapy works. Like I don't get how, like what is the change agent here? <laughs> how is it working? As I became more comfortable in my orientation, like I could begin to understand what actually helps a client change or create mm-hmm. change for themselves. Mm-hmm. So those are the two things that come up for me. I also think about therapist identity when I think about my own journey into finding my theoretical orientation and even now continuing to figure out what kind of therapist I am. It really took me onto a self-knowledge journey. Yeah. It was about listening to myself. How do I view the world? What kind of therapist do I want to be? Though style and the way we show up is so much more rich than just what my theoretical orientation is. I think that that's one way where we figure out where we fit in, in the in the broader landscape, what kind of clients fit with this theoretical orientation, and who are our people? 
you know, yeah. what kind of conferences are you going to or mm-hmm. trainings that you go to and you look around and you go, these are my people. I relate to this. I can think more deeply and relate to people on deeper levels because we have this shared understanding. That being said, I think for you and I, a lot of our, I mean, I know that there's some existential trainings, but for me, there are almost no relational cultural um, trainings. However, you know, finding my people, ADP, Mm -hmm. feels like some, some of my people doing somatic work also feels like my people anytime that it's kind of a depth oriented conference, even though I'm not, I don't see myself as psychodynamic. There's something about who are my people. Yeah. Maybe that's what we need to do then is, is each share a little bit about our story to finding our theoretical orientation because as new therapists are listening, they might go like, I just don't even know <laughs> what to do to, to find a theoretical orientation or to know who my people are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Tell us yeah. about your story, Jordan. My story. I, I'm thinking about my introduction to theoretical – is it just introduction to theoretical orientation? class. I don't know if that's what it was. Theories course. Yeah. 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 I knew going into grad school that feminism was something that was a solid ground for me. It was a solid identity. So I um, automatically was like, what are the feminist theories of, of psychotherapy? And at the time, really narrative. I mean, there's feminist just kind of broadly, and then there's Mm. the narrative therapy approach. So that's where I gravitated to immediately and went through a lot of my schooling, studying through that lens. Mm -hmm. And then over time, there was something about the externalizing, like all of that stuff made sense to me. Doing the contextualizing in larger systems made a lot of sense to me. So I went to the narrative therapy conference. I did one of the um, narrative therapy trainings here in Vancouver. And I just felt like there was something missing, the body, the somatic, or just the emotional. It felt sort of cold to me, analytical, which I think is so important. And in sitting with a client, it felt like I needed more than the externalization and the contextualization of someone's experiences. Transitioning to finding relational cultural theory late during my practicum and feeling like this is it, you know, that we all move towards relationship, the feminist perspective in the way that we, what we talk about, but also the way that we relate to each other, the power dynamic, that that's also a key piece and focusing mm-hmm. on relationship, similar to what you do in, in terms of the relationship is the base. Totally. I continue to do AEDP and to slot in more of the somatic work. And my base will always be relational, cultural, theoretical orientation that I can continue to integrate into that perspective yeah. for myself. Yeah. What about you? I have no memory of early days in thinking about the. I do remember my theories course. I had to do a presentation on reality therapy, which I was like... <laughs> Not into, tell you that. And I feel like very early on, we read Gift of Therapy in one of my seminar courses, and that really like opened up the door to me to work existentially. I remember feeling a lot of almost like embarrassed. I can't remember what I did for my MCQE, which is the qualifying exam to to graduate from our school, the school that that surprises me. It wasn't existential. That's the thing is that I find that with people where you choose one for strategic purposes for school while developing your own theoretical orientation, which I think has benefits and drawbacks. I must have done Adlerian. I didn't think that I could do well on the exam doing existential because I didn't think that they would consider it enough of a, th- of a theoretical orientation. Now, that may have changed. We graduated a long time ago, so I don't know. I think you're right. Like I'm curious around what 
the theoretical orientations are today in school because like neither of ours. I mean, I took my MCQE with relational cultural and I had to be educating the adjudicators. Um, So they were like, tell me more about this. And I was so on it that I was able to to do it, but it was a little bit of shaky ground. Mm -hmm. Is this okay? Yeah. I really didn't cement my identity as a therapist, I would say, until like even just like maybe a couple of years ago where I was like, oh, this is just how I work. Where I think I was be, trying to be more integrated. Like, oh, I offer CBT and Gottman mm-hmm. stuff. And like, it's not like that's not there. It's just that I understand pathology, for lack of better phrasing, through an existential lens. Like I make sense of anxiety and depression and heartbreak and all of these things through an existential understanding of people and the world and relationships. I understand healing and growth and change also through that same lens. So that's mm-hmm. now so much more comfortable just to be like, this is how I make sense of therapy uh, and drawn to it for similar reasons. Like I think it just aligned with my values and it aligned with what I just like believe and think about the world that really has turned into kind of like a full rejection in some ways of solutions-focused therapy. Not because I don't think solution-focused therapy is great because there are people who want it and there are amazing practitioners who practice it. I don't want to do solution-focused therapy with people, and the clients who are drawn to me are not people who want me to help them find solutions. Yeah. I don't offer solutions-focused therapy because there is no solution to your impending death, and there mm-hmm. is no solution to the ultimate loneliness of world uh, of life, and there is no solution to like the burden of existence, and I like that. <laughs> it's like I'm like, yeah. Yeah. There's no solution to being human. Yeah. There's no solution to your humanness and to your mm-hmm. humanity. And I love in existential psychotherapy, which is so similar to relational cultural, is like the th- the skill in air quotes that we learn is how to be with a client. Mm-hmm. That is the ultimate skill. That's the only thing that is presence. Yeah. The work is actually just about being another person and leveling the the playing field as much as possible. And that just like resonates with me so much. And I think too another piece of this is like what what work energizes you, mm-hmm. and like CBT never. You know, any of those ones that are like formulaic and manualized, there I think there are people who get so jazzed about it and that's amazing, but it drained me. You like ex- the- exposure therapy sometimes. You use I that. do really like exposure therapy. Yeah. Exposure therapy though is cool because the, the exposure like shouldn't take up the entirety of the session. Yeah. And so there's like a dipping into the exposure then having to come back up and then kind of doing we can be in the explore place, which is really cool. I think it's also so helpful for you to say that for listeners, you can take your exam and still be trying to figure it out. It's a career long exploration of what kind Mm -hmm. of therapist am I and how do I see change? Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a solid grounding, but I do think that, you know, with AEDP and IFS, like Mm -hmm. we were talking before recording that there may be students now who use that in their exams. And that was barely on the radar when we were in school. I don't know if I heard about IFS no. until Mm-mm. at least a couple of years after. I heard ADP for the first time in 2018. Yeah. Like three and a half years ago. Yeah. It was felt brand new to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and there was a time where you did EMDR. It's not energizing to me. So I would be open to using EMDR again, but as a tool for very particular uses. Yeah. Mm-hmm. rather than the EMDR practitioners who are like, it. I do for everything. It literally does everything. I remember yeah. in the training, um, Marshall, Marshall, I forget his last name, but if you were in Vancouver and you've taken EMDR, you know who I'm talking about. He, um, mm-hmm. like just solid EMDR practitioner who uses EMDR for everything. Right. And I'm just never going to be that person. Yeah. 
And I think that that's huge. I, maybe maybe it's hard when you're a baby therapist or a practicum therapist to know what energizes you because actually everything just feels draining. You're so like paying attention and mm-hmm. am I nodding correctly? Am I making good eye contact? Did I Am I making nonverbals? Like it's so much like mental work that maybe nothing feels like that was great. But I do think when we're out of that fog and we're feeling a bit more comfortable that the checking in to go like what work makes me feel the best, like mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. Feel the best, not even just like what works, what work seems to like the clients like the most, because that's great, but also sometimes irrelevant is that's the data to know, mm-hmm. okay, this is the work I, I could or should be doing. And that's for co- client population as well. I just think of how much time I spent seeing a type of client that is just like not my bag because I mm-hmm. thought I had to or I should. It was just a lot of energy outputting to show up in a way that was not how I want to show up. And it's interesting because now maybe taking on new clients, we'll see. I could take on maybe one new client and just figuring out how do I do that? Because I want it to be with somebody who's a good fit. Mm-hmm. And it's really um, maybe for us to do in another episode or a Patreon episode. But the more that you're in it, the more you're able to speak to what kind of work you want to do, who you want to work with. It just becomes easier. It becomes so much it's easier. So much easier. Mm-hmm. We recently had someone write a review of our podcast that was like not super nice, which is fine. But the thing that they talked about was that they felt like we what do they say? Indoctrinate people. Indoctrinate. Yeah. 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 <laughs> now that's a very said, strong word. It's a super strong word. And as you said, like I think that there's valid criticism in all feedback that we get. So we're we're also seeking the like, what is the nugget here that we want to take away? But how do you think that that – do you think that's connected to the way that you and I practice therapy specifically? I mean, sometimes we're pretty critical of Mm -hmm. CBT in a way that it's – I want to be clear that it's like great CBT therapists want to refer to them and, like you said, not my bag. We have our perspective. This is our space. I wonder – they didn't use this as as an example – but talking about being pro-choice in an episode. Radically pro-choice. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think that that might be a space where, yes, politics, therapy is political. And to say, to keep politics out of this conversation does a disservice to the people who are listening, but also to us. Because to me, it's it causes moral injury to try to practice therapy apolitical, even though I know that's not possible. But the idea of like, as a therapist, we're not neutral. Yeah. Therapy is not neutral. Which is what I love about both of our orientations is that there is no demand for neutrality in the Mm -hmm. work in my theoretical orientation or yours. Mm -hmm. In fact, there's the exact opposite, which is like all context is important. All of it. Mm -hmm. There is no necessity to be neutral, which is wonderful. Mm -hmm. But there's something interesting too about to talk about CBT just a little bit more and why we are critical of CBT. Not only, in my opinion, why I'm critical of CBT. It's not only that I do, it doesn't work for me. I don't like it. I wouldn't like it as a client and I don't like it as – I don't like doing it as a therapist. But I, I do integrate some CBT things into my practice. So I say a lot like I don't do pure or clean CBT, right? I do um, very messy, grimy, feelings-laden CBT. But I think that anytime – and this is going to happen with EMDR too, I think, is my is – my, I'm theorizing here, which is that anytime that we say this thing works for everything and we throw all mm-hmm. of this like research behind it and we make it so research is that we don't leave space to talk about the harm it could be causing. And we don't leave space to talk about the people who are not served by CBT. Often when I bump into people who practice CBT, there can be this sense of like, it works for everything or it's really great for everything. 
nothing is great for everything. In the same mm-hmm. way that my approach to therapy is not great for every client. And I know that I can't, you know, I don't work necessarily with like acute anxiety. I shouldn't say that because I, I do more. You do. But <laughs> like, I don't know, schizophrenia, for example. Like, I'm not out here trying to help people manage their schizophrenia symptoms through existential psychotherapy because that would be completely inappropriate, not work. But five, 10 years from now, we're going to have so much more data about what CBT has done to our field. I don't know. I don't I just, think we will. I don't think, I we, think will. we will. I would hope that there's more um, an understanding of how CBT can fit in a larger way of working. Integrated way, yeah. Yeah, in an integrated way. And that's how I describe it when I'm talking to clients who say, oh, my doctor told me I need to find a CBT therapist. And I say, well, I'm not a CBT therapist. Yeah, I do work with CBT mm-hmm. as to- as tools that I might share with you, but it is not a systematic CBT type therapy. The thing that gets in the way of that is the research and how totally. people do research, that it has totally. to be manualized, double blind. I went to a conference a while back and there was a um, there was a speaker talking about how we, in order to do ethical work and to serve our clients best, we need to only be doing research-based therapy. I understand that perspective. And on the face, if I'm part of the client population, you go, I mean, I am a client, yeah, but I just I mean know like that a general works, right? client population. Yeah. I would say like, oh yeah, that's shady that therapists are just kind of going off the rails and doing what they want. That sounds like, I don't know, kind of like naturopathy, even though I have a naturopath, so I'm not... <laughs> I'm not completely shitting on naturopaths. Yeah, it's but hard to pick up. There, are, example, some, right? there yeah. are some really problematic ones. And I think that's true for therapists too, who are really oh, doing yeah. therapy that is harmful. Yes. And you can't do existential therapy with a double blind, manualized oh way of working. That's just no. not possible. How do you research it? How do we research if it's effective? And that happened for our exams too, where I had to say, I know. how is relational cultural therapy or theory evidence-based because we can only do an evidence-based theoretical orientation for our exam. So I did, so I pulled all this research about the relationship between therapist and client and that that was the most important thing because we know that. So that's the way in which I talk about it in terms of the direction of the field. So much of it is still focused on research and to tell you with a partner who is a who is a scientist and a researcher, I can see the limitations of academia of just going like these are you know people not often practitioner researchers, people who have experience in doing therapy, and okay. so are doing it from this very like I need to get my research done. I don't know that there's going to be. It's so slow moving. I guess is what I'm saying. So slow yeah. moving. And heavily influenced by like, I mean, we read this in in Yalom's work a lot, right? This push towards being manualized so that we can like charge insurance companies only this much for certain therapies. Like it is economic and it talk about all the systems that are at play. Like this is capitalism in a nutshell telling us the reason why CBT exploded in the way that it did is because it fit in this capitalist structure of like, we only want to pay you this much and it better Mm -hmm. work in 12 sessions, but we're also hitting on, and I'm so glad we're talking about, we can get away from CBT for a bit what are the limits of a theoretical orientation? I want to say that differently. Like where does it stop mattering what mm. theoretical orientation you practice from? And you've already said it, which is the relationship. Mm-hmm. Which is why for students and new therapists to really focus on some of the things that we talk about in this podcast of how do I attend to the relationship if I were to let go of my theoretical orientation for let's say one week, one mm-hmm. week of your practicum and just mm-hmm. focus on the relationship 
it's hard with certain sites, but to focus on that as the primary versus the interventions, I think that you would see how transformative it can be with clients. Research time and time again shows us that what is the biggest predictor of positive outcomes for our clients, whatever that looks like for them, is the relationship that they have with their therapist. So even if their therapist is, you know, using ACT or AADP or is existential or is cultural relational or is CBT, that if the client feels safe, feels heard, feels mm-hmm. respected, if there's space to discuss the relationship, they are inevitably going to have better therapeutic outcomes. Mm-hmm. And this is what I love about existential work is like nothing matters more in existentialism than the relationship. If everything single session was just a conversation about our relationship, mine and my therapy, my clients, mm-hmm. that would still be therapy. Yeah, and that of would course. still be transformational. Yeah, yeah you mm-hmm. say of course. It's not there in the same way for a lot of other orientations. The like, how are we doing? The the weeness between us or whatever it is. The other pieces as a new therapist asking about how it's going is terrifying. <laughs> Even yeah. as a student wanting, you know, reading the gift of therapy and yeah. I'm sure other things that just made, like, et cetera, back, et cetera. Yeah, just even back then I knew that I wanted to be the type of therapist that talked about the relationship and it was so hard to ask. And even now yeah. there's certain clients where it's like, it feels vulnerable to ask them because I have an idea of what the feedback might be. And it's hard to (laughs) accept that um, and to respond to it versus people who I know that we're on solid ground and that we can work through things. But noticing what parts feel tender. If a client says, well, you're super young and I don't trust you. How do you feel about how this went? Well, I just, I don't know if you can relate to me because Mm. you're so young. How vulnerable that was to ask and to hear as a new therapist. So I get wanting to focus on intervention because it does feel like I am doing my schooling and I'm doing the right thing. Yeah. And to me, it's missing one of the essential, beautiful things about therapy, not really? asking or talking about the therapeutic relationship. Do you, do you um, encourage your students to ask about the therapeutic relationship? Yeah. 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 Me too. I feel like our primary focus right now is how to ask the client, like, how are we doing? How was today? Are you getting what you need? In my very biased opinion, far more important than than any intervention. Yeah. Mm. Honestly, in a relational perspective, I don't like to use the word intervention. I see it as this discrete, okay, I'm going to do something to you way of thinking of things, which is not how I see therapy. I get from yeah. a student's perspective and also from theoretical orientation. Yeah. Well, yeah. and let's try something. And that's how I see it is like the space for experimentation and let's mm. uh, let's do something together versus I'm doing something to you. Right. The, the other thing that's interesting, I mean, especially in existentialism, is that everything is like an intervention then. Me handing you tissues or right. us just sitting in the silence is an intervention. Yeah. Just even how we are present is therapy. Uh, again, that can be a bit overwhelming, but it's also like, oh, good. I don't have to do a subscriptive thing, prescriptive, prescriptive thing. I can just be authentically here as much as I can be and that that is actually an intervention. It is. And as a new therapist, it is like, what does it mean to be authentically here? You know? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I think I still mean? was yeah. learning so much about myself, who I am Same. as a therapist, but who I am as a person too, trying to find, feel comfortable in my skin where I am in my place in the world. So it makes sense to me that our human development is parallel to our therapist development. Totally. Because obviously those things are one and the same. 
it's okay to not have it figured out. I'm we've said this before on the podcast, but my therapist self, because my human self is going to continue to change. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, we relate to clients differently when we get older and then they're older. And- oh, yeah. It is interesting that so, you know, for a large percentage of people who are becoming therapists, that's kind of in your early 20s, mid 20s, maybe to like late 20s often, right? Of course, I know that there's like older people who return matured, students who return to do their master's degrees. And that's, I think that's yeah, wonderful. Yeah, second, need- second careers. Second careers. I think that's wonderful. Mm-hmm. But a vast majority of people in master's programs right now are probably 21 through to like 27. And that's like a really transformational time just in general. Yes. Like where you Mm -hmm. are developing your sense of self and developing who you want to be and maybe developing relationships, letting go of high school relationships perhaps, getting married, having children, realizing that you're gay. Like there's so much that can happen. And so it is really fascinating to think about like how does that impact the work that you do? How does that impact the theoretical orientations that you're drawn to? And I think it's important for us to name that like you don't have to be married to a theoretical orientation. If you start working and you realize that you drift away from that thing, I mean, this is why I think 99% of therapists are integrated Mm -hmm. rather than like I do this purely, including myself and maybe including you too. You can pick and choose the pieces that feel good to you and you can decide this one specific thing that's a part of this bigger thing that I like, I don't like doing because it's yeah. just, I hate it, whether that's like imaginal exercises or inner child work or something that just doesn't fit for me. But all of this other stuff does from that theory, like integrate it. Amazing. Pull it in. Yeah. Integrated, really I think anymore. is the key word because mm-hmm. remember when we were back in school and eclectic was a bad word. Well, even in my doctorate program, they were mm-hmm. like, never refer to yourself as eclectic because it just sounds like messy. Say integrated. Yeah. Because it sounds, it feels more deliberate. I'm like, these feel like the same, your synonyms, but okay. Well, and I think that I would hope that they're different, but rather than putting, throwing a bunch of things at a wall and seeing what sticks, that it is like, <laughs> it is deliberate. deliberate. Yeah. Like this is totally. what I'm putting into place because of X, Y, Z reasons that it makes sense in my larger, okay, we're relationship building. Let's do, I don't know, something, some intervention that I'm not coming up with on the top of my head, <laughs> but you know, cu- creating yeah. something that is within this mm-hmm larger understanding versus just like, let's try something, yeah. which I think is also a very student thing to do. Like, so now we're going to do empty chair. Let's yeah. try something, which is also something that I'm listening for when I'm listening to clips with supervisees. How do you introduce an, a quote unquote intervention? How do you introduce it? And then how do you transition into using it and then transition out of using it? Because it is awkward at first. It's awkward at first. And it's I think so that's where awkward. I think that that particular moment is so important in attending to the relationship. Totally. So if you can skillfully bring through interventions in a way that feels integrated into the larger work, then that is relational versus let me introduce this to you. I'm doing something to you. And the person is kind of caught off guard and they, it feels like something that's coming between you. It comes up a lot for my students, which is like, okay, creating those bridging moments. Mm -hmm. You're making it clear to the client, like, why are we about to do what we're about to do? How does it fit into everything we've been talking about? Mm -hmm. Have you gotten their consent? Have you said like, are you open to, you know, so all those little bridging statements, you know, instead of just being like, let's do da da da. Although- I'm sure I did lots of that early on. I don't know how much of this is like a part of just journeying through becoming a therapist. You have to blunder. You have to kind of like 
be bumbly and awkward and then you get to like the smooth, beautiful transitions? Or can we be like telling people early on, let's work on bridging statements so that it is more fluid? I, I just wonder. And what gets deemed as an intervention, right? So now it's so, and maybe this is the opposite of what I would want in a student, but I'll say like, what would you say to your mom? But I don't do like, talk to your mom right there. Oh, see, I always, I try to do risks and benefits. Like inner child work, for example, if I'm going to do an imaginal exercise with a client, like I prep them a lot because I, it can be so emotional. Yeah. And so I'll say like, okay, this is the benefit of doing something like this. And here are some of the risks. We can feel, we might touch something really tender. Mm-hmm. How are we going to know if it's too much? Like I do lots of, depending yeah. on the thing. Yeah. Like I might just throw out a like, what would you say to your mom? But if we're going to like go there. Oh, yeah. I do a bit more like container, 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 container. And it's part of the work that we normally do. We can stop anytime, switch gears. Does that make sense for us to do this? Yeah, love that. And how that is an intervention. Like again, if depending on your theoretical orientation to even ask like – or to say, you know, we can switch gears at any moment is therapeutic. Like that is therapy. Yeah. And it's relational. It's relational. But when you're younger, you're a new therapist, you don't necessarily see those things as interventions. Part of that is – kind of clunky (laughs) transition between recognizing what empathic therapeutic listening is, where it feels really boring when you're first starting. Like, "Ah, whatever. (laughs) Like, yeah, I'll listen. I'm good at listening. (laughs) When it actually takes a lot. So anyone who says that they could be a therapist or they are a therapist without doing any training, it's like, of course, there's therapeutic listening. And the amount of skill that it takes. Yes. When I watch a therapist on TV, I can tell when they haven't talked to a therapist to, to yeah to help do them. It. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and it's just like, oh, this is what people think that a therapist yes. says. Yes, 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 yes. This is not skilled at all, right? Which is, I guess, what you're doing as a as a student is yeah. being like, what do I think a therapist yes. does? Because yeah. I actually don't know. Which is why I often I try to have my students watch me do therapy mm-hmm. in live, so yeah. that they can have a sense of. What does it actually look like with a real therapist? Yeah. Uh, especially in my orientation, right? Like it, so it's interesting that we are kind of guessing at first. That's one thing that I love about doing new trainings is being able to see tapes. Me too. I love it. Is that that's my favorite part of doing trainings is not the theory part, though that's interesting too. What is the particular language? of this therapist and how do they talk about their interventions? Because even though, you know, we're talking about empty chair, even though I almost never, obviously now with the virtual therapy, I never do empty chair, but some version of empty chair Mm -hmm. because there's so many different variations. How does this person talk about it or conceptualize it? How do they use it differently? It's Mm -hmm. so interesting to me and I love that work. So doing new trainings of seeing, seeing tapes and, Supervision groups, I think a group of even some of your peers that maybe you could get together and watch each other's tapes. Totally. Because it is so helpful to yeah, hear how really other is. people do it and to take totally. some of that language. Mm-hmm. Thinking about new therapists listening who are interested in understanding or figuring out their orientation. Mm-hmm. It's a lifelong process. <laughs> it's a career-long process. You don't have to necessarily land on one and be cemented there forever. Checking with yourself around what feels good, what feels not good, what feels more draining, what feels less draining. Yeah. You know, find people who seem really energized and see if the stuff they're doing energizes you too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's important to you? I think yeah. Values is huge. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Taking trainings in a way that um, being open and getting to, yeah, feel who your people are. 
is a way of doing that too. I mean, going to something like evolution of psychotherapy, going to the different things and being like, oh, like you can almost tell right away sometimes like this is not <laughs> what I want, want to do. Oh do you remember God. the one that we went to, the one <sighs> session? That was it the hypnotism? <laughs> yes. It was so bad. I remember just being like, I will never do this. Yeah. Ever. And there is something around like sometimes you do a training and the theory is actually really interesting, but the person doing it just does That's it true. in a way that you don't yeah. like. And so mm-hmm. sometimes you just circle back and try again. But there is some stuff where you're like, huh, I absolutely hate this mm-hmm. and will never do it this way. Yep. <laughs> yeah. It's funny when that happens. I think we I were think like writing really- notes to each other about how bad it was, but some people were really into it. I know. I do think too, like finding – if you're a new therapist or you're a, new, a practicum therapist, finding the people who are passionate about therapy, who seem to love it, want to talk about it, and want to teach you, and want to share, whether those people are on Instagram or podcasts or they're out there doing really cool trainings, find the people who are stoked about it because there are a lot of therapists out there who just feel, I think, kind of meh about the whole thing, mm-hmm. and that's fine. Yeah, Don't spend too much time <laughs> – with yeah. those people because mm-hmm. therapy is so fun. It's so amazing. It's so energizing. It's so creative and beautiful. It's like improv. Like there's so much about it that's amazing. And so finding other people who are stoked about it and figuring out how they work and what they like, meeting people who are just so stoked about what they do. Yeah. Sometimes we talk about people who've been in the field for 30, 40, 50 years, seeing that there's a limitation on what they can offer. But it's a huge difference between somebody who is enthusiastic about the work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, versus somebody. Excited. I think sometimes it feels like there's a deadening, a been there, done that kind of um, yeah. perspective, which mm-hmm. I hope sometimes I can hear it in the way that we talk about that. And I don't want that. I want therapy yeah, to always seem alive and changing to us. Same. And doing this podcast is one way that we do that. So thank Oh my you. gosh, it helps so much. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's our episode about theoretical orientation. As always, we want to know what you think and we want to know if what theoretical orientations are standing out to you right now in the in your place of training, if you're already practicing, how you practice and and why. And so as always, feel free to send us a DM on Instagram or send us an email at connect at edgeofthecouch.com. Jordan, how are you going to finish us off? Listen to yourself and love what you do. Love that. And we will talk to you next time. We'll see you next time. Bye. Hey, Edge of the Couch listeners. This is Katie from Jane. Thanks for letting me join you for another episode. If you're new to Jane, no worries. Jane is an all-in-one practice management software designed to be helpful to you no matter how or where you practice. Now, you might be wondering what that looks like in a software. Well, with Jane, it looks like online booking that makes it easy for your clients to book a session with you, administrative scheduling that's intuitive and beautifully designed, and charting that's quick and simple. Our features are designed with you, our mental health community, in mind, so you can spend less time doing admin work and more time focusing on what matters, your clients. This is your invitation to come see Jane for yourself. You can book a demo with a member of our support team at jane.app forward slash mental health. If you're ready to get started, just mention Edge of the Couch during sign up and we'll set you up with a one month grace period. We'll talk to you later. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at connect at edgeofthecouch.com to tell us what you think, ask a question, or let us know what type of episode you'd love to hear. You can even send us a voice note for us to play in a future episode. 
you can support us by giving us a review on Apple Podcasts, sharing the show with a friend, or supporting us on Patreon. Join us next time at The Edge of the Couch. Oh, 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 o